Listener Production. G'day, Rusty here, all set for part two of my podcast with Supercars Hall of Famer Neil Crompton. If you haven't already, make sure you head back to the Garage Library and hit the start button on part one. There's some great yarns in there from his early years riding, racing and commentating. The man who once famously had to sit beside Dame Edna Everidge and play driving instructor during a celebrity race can talk in almost any situation. So chatting at speed at Bathurst when they crossed to him via race cam seemed to come as easy to Crompo as it did for the legends like Dick Johnson and Peter Brock. Look, the truth of the matter is that when you speak in a race car, particularly if you compare it to what goes on in the modern era, it is a distraction and it would cost you time. Quantifying it, I couldn't tell you. And obviously, as you get older, that probably changes. But, um, you know, the pressure around the game was different in those days. I mean, you've got to stop and think about the fact that there were no pit lane speed limiters. People kind of rolled off the throttle going into the pits when they thought it was about right and picked up the throttle on the other side when they thought it was about right. It's all that sort of stuff. So we all thought that we were space shuttle pilots of the day, but the rhythm of the game has changed and the margins have changed and it's tightened up enormously. And, you know, the boys can't do the same sort of thing to this day. But I remember doing car to car between David Parsons and I one year at Bathurst in a coke car and Skippy and I were taught, he was in Glenn Seaton's car and I was in the coke car and we're just gibbering away. Um, but these days it's sort of more about doing it when the safety car comes out or when there's other opportunities off the back of a lap or whatever, which is really cool to be able to join the drivers and get their point of view. But in those days it wasn't as big a deal. Mind you, it always kind of came under a somewhat greyish, not necessarily black cloud at CAMS, now known as Motorsport Australia, because, you know, quite rightly, you could su- you could suggest that there was a, you know, it was a significant distraction. But, yeah, it was fun and, and again, it's a different era. And, and, I mean, in 1988, as an example, we had the M3, which just wasn't competitive at, at Bathurst and Peter was really battling trying to hold that mobile deal together. Is that a nice little car to drive? It was a beautiful little car to drive. It was an absolute thrill to drive that thing and one of my greatest recollections and fondest memories and proudest moments was the toe-to-toe battles with Peter and Jimmy in those cars at Amory Park. I loved Amory Park and I loved racing those two guys who were just, you know, you know what they are, they're gold-plated um, when it comes to the history of motorsport in this country. So... Um, you know, I just we were kind of going nowhere at that stage. It wasn't the car to have. The Sierra was the car to have. And Peter clobbered a wheel or something and ripped the oil cooler out of his car. And if you remember in those days, everyone was cross-ended. So all of a sudden, we're all mixed and matched. You know, I'd been in a five-speed car with whoever I was with. Jimmy and Peter were in another car, which had a pro-drive six-speed gearbox in it that David Richards flogged them for some extraordinary amount of money. (laughs) (laughs) It was literally like 35 grand, extraordinary amount of money. Hello, David. Um, And... um, you know, so we were nowhere. Like we were after all the repairs, and we've all swapped in and out of each other's cars. Suddenly, I'm with Brock. You know, we're millions of laps behind, and that was the year that Mike and may have been even Mulray. I can't remember. Mm. They they called up and chatted. Now, you know, that was all theatre. 
and that actually saved our mobile deal. So that that actually that's a true story. So in '89, I'd left the team by then, but in '89, Bradley came in and drove in the Sierra, and that actually the amount of publicity that it generated and and the goodwill that it generated was enough for that deal to roll over into into '89. So so sometimes those things have got hidden benefits. So even though we were nowheresville that day, I remember having we had Larry and I have a tremendous relationship these days, and he helped a lot in in my career, but. I I remember him growling at me about, you know, that's not what motor racing's all about. And he's right. Um, you know, chatting out of a car when you're 10 laps behind or something is not what it's all about or was all about in those days. But that's what we did to survive. That's mm-hmm. that's how you, on that particular day, it was the card we played to keep the sponsor happy and to stay in the business. So in that sense, you do what you need to do to survive. You have told this story a few times at, at various events. You and Bradley had your plan because you got an opportunity to go elsewhere. Yeah. But it would potentially, if you did things right, open the door for him with, with Brock. <laughs> so it was kind of, was it like good cop, bad cop? Or I, don't yeah. know, I don't know what the best description is here. Just share it. Share it. Well, I got an approach from uh, Tom Walkinshaw and John Crennan uh, who were forming the Holden Racing Team in, in 1988 the plans were afoot. Now, if you remember, they'd been running as HSV and briefly had a couple of outings and and HSV had taken over the hotting up Holden's business from Peter, so there was no love lost there. Um, but I'd done a couple of years with Peter. The BMW was not competitive and there was no guarantee that there was necessarily going to be Ford Sierras or whatever was coming along. But then the, the opportunity to potentially be a Holden factory driver, to drive with the former British touring car champion, Wynn Percy, and to drive for the almighty international Tom Walkinshaw Racing and be paid was, a, it was kind of monumental because, you know, you would have been the same. You, you, in that era, you sort of grew up thinking, oh, my goodness, if ever you could be the factory Ford or the factory Holden driver or whatever, this would be like being blessed, you know. It was just an extraordinary thing to contemplate so I sat down with them and and would have been sort of towards the end of 88 and they made an offer and it was a it was a terrific offer at the time and um, and I said yes but then the net effect of that is I had to square up and go and tell my existing they weren't even really employers I was just sort of a squatter at Brock's <laughs> driving the other car but Peter and Bev were close friends um Alan Gow was managing the team. He's gone on to be a, an FIA World Motorsport Council guy, runs the British Touring Car Championship and, you know, he's, he's, he's somebody in international motorsport and British motorsport these days, uh, even though for Bradley and I he's just Gow, yeah. <laughs> so that we have a lot of fun with him. Anyway, so they were out in Coburg and, and uh, in these days, you know, remember Brock went through all sorts of phases, including, you know, taking to clay modelling larders and putting spoilers and things on them. And I think the current, the, at the time, the current iteration of the madness was he was going to do something with Falcons, of all things, and I think the joint was called Oztech or whatever it was called. But anyway, it was all crazy. So um, I said to Bradley, um, you know, obviously we were mates, you know, I've got to, I'm going to have to go and tell him what's going on here. This is going to be pretty tough. But, you know, one door closes, another one opens, you know. Why don't you just hang and then maybe at the right moment you just should bowl in there because if you're in the right place at the right time, you might jag a drive. So I go in there, fall on my sword, you know, 
Brock couldn't believe it, made me feel uncomfortable. You know, Gauss shaking his head, you know, oh, you know, everything we've done for you. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know, guys, but, you know, you know what it's like. You know, you've driven for Holden. They're going to pay me. We would have paid you. Yeah, well, where's the money, Gauss? You know, like, so it's all that. So anyway, I slink out and it was like a high Ralph, high Sam moment. And uh, so I high-five Bradley. I walk out. He, we're parked around the corner where they can't see us. He leaves it for three or four or five minutes and then bowls in. Hey, guys, how's it going? And they, oh, you're not going to believe it. Bloody Cromley's just walked out of the joint. No way, has he? He's such an asshole. What are you going to do for a driver? <laughs> so that, that's what happened. And away, really. and away he went. So he was in the Sierra the next year and, uh, yeah, that's, yeah. We had to, there had to be a statute of limitations on telling that story, so I think we're probably okay <laughs> to tell it now. But I, I don't think I've actually squared up and looked at Gow in the eye. I've only, I only see him in London every now and again. Every now and again he comes down here and acquaints, acquaints us with his royal dignity. And, uh, yeah, so anyway, yeah, that, that was that story. Uh, we'll briefly get to Formula Holden in a second. There's a great little chapter there. But in your office you showed me a photo once which uh, really got my attention. Did you go to Le Mans one year? Oh, yes. Were you working with Ross Braun maybe? Was it Silk Cut Jags? Well, I'm, I'm trying to join the dots here. I don't know if I've got all that correct. Well, today I've just done some work with Martin Brundle, ironically, yeah. and Martin Brundle won the 1990 Le Mans 24-hour driving the Silk Cut Jaguar. So one of the things that Tom said at the cockroach-infested Travelodge <laughs> at the Melbourne airport was that and I can't do a Scottish accent, but when you drive one of my cars, laddie, it'll be like pulling on a familiar sock. You know, you'll you'll be living in the thing. And, and one of the things we want you to do is we want you to get crazy fit and we'd like you to be involved in the sports car program because we're going to run, you know, multiple cars as we have, have over the years. And, you know, if you go okay, there'll definitely be an opportunity for you internationally. Now we're talking. Like, this is just like, holy crap. So... Um, and that was a big project in those days. I mean, Larry got to drive for them in 88. He finished fourth there. Um, and I've got photos of the squadron. I went to um, Silverstone with them testing at one stage. And in their day, they were pretty magnificent things. Scafie got to drive the Nissan equivalent at the time as well. Um, so, you know, pretty amazing cars, the Group C sports cars back in that era. And uh, Formula One paddock, mate, weren't they? Oh right? yeah, well yeah, and ultimately, as you say, Ross Braun was the uh, um, the technical director of that program. Worked for Tom, and you know, I still remember all those guys: Andy Morrison, Ken Page. Um, you know, there was a there was a whole bunch of people that were very talented, um, hardcore racers that were involved in Tom's projects. And uh, uh, anyway, so prospect of doing that you know now i'm hopping skipping jumping eating eating lettuce i'm i mean my typical kind of normal weight if i'm actually not like i am now um you know as a lazy television commentator but uh, you know my typical kind of mid-level training weights kind of 84 85 maybe 86 kilos i got down to like 78 79 kilos so i was kind of a crazy shadow um and there's actually photos lurking around of me doing all this silly training and stuff because tom said so well the reality was i didn't end up driving those cars and that's a whole, whole another story but um i was trying to do some formula 3000 in the uk and you'd do anything to make a dollar so our publicist for Brock's racing team in 1988 was... Um, go yeah, go the memory. I can't think of the name of it. Anyway, CSS International, I think they were called, and it was run by a guy called Andrew Marriott. Andrew Marriott, you probably know, is kind of involved in broadcasting over many, many years. Anyway, out of the blue, he connects with 
Neville and Richard Hay, who'd done some work with Mike, and says, oh, you know, is Crompton, I've heard he's over here somewhere in the UK, would he be interested in doing something at Le Mans? I don't do, you know, anything to make a dollar. Anyway, so I ended up um, saying yes to it because it was paid 1500 bucks or whatever it paid, and I went and worked at Le Mans that weekend, and I did it with James Allen. Wow. And um, I think your mate Tom Clarkson was involved in that that weekend as well. Uh, I remember at about three or four o'clock in the morning having to sleep under the bench (laughs) in the commentary box because I couldn't spell my own name at that stage. I was so tired. But um, anyway, so Brundle and those guys won the race and so they sent me up on the podium and I'd completely forgotten about this until someone showed me the photograph recently and here's me standing there next to Martin interviewing him on the podium at 1990. So, I mean, really being on the podium at... Lamont, everyone's done that, <laughs> but for a slightly different set of reasons. But, yeah, funny memories. Mark Scaife, Neil Crompton and several others have raced a great little open-wheel category that this country had called Formula Holden or Formula Brabham. When Scaife came on the podcast, I, I hit him up with a story about the pair of you being at Winton in these cars <laughs> and him asking you, hey, Crompo, can I go flat through the sweeper? <laughs> You're testing or something or other, and you stitched him. Well, uh, is that true? Or? You know, it's absolutely true. Um, so I did the 89 season in the in the open wheeler, and, you know, they were pretty cool cars, Formula 3000 cars with the Holden V6 engine, which was based on the Buick engine, so a lot of torque. They didn't well, sound Wally story great. engineer? Or what yeah, Wally was the engineer, and... Um, you know, uh, mine was a, a Rolt RT20, which uh, Nakajima had driven in the European uh, 3000 Championship. And Scafi initially had this thing called a, an SPA and then later had a, or a Spa, and later had a, a Lola. And, uh, you know, they, Gibson Motorsport did a beautiful job of preparing their cars and, and, and running their cars. And Ross Holder, who now these days well, has been also my engineer in the journey, but also just a great mate. Um, and Harry Galloway and a whole bunch of really talented people were on his side of the garage. Anyway, you know, early on, he's a, he's a sponge for knowledge and I don't know, the truth of the matter is, I don't know whether it was Fred or Mark that rang me. I've got a feeling it was actually Fredo. Can't, I can't vouch one way or the other, but the bottom line of the story is, can you get through the Turn 5 sweeper at Winton Flat? <laughs> so without even batting an eyelid, I go, oh, yeah, like, of course you can. Open wheeler with arrow on it like that. Jesus, like if you can't get through there flat, there's something massively wrong. So um, never one to shy from a challenge, particularly a dare, you know, even as something as simple as an arm wrestle. Buffhead goes roaring around there. It probably was in the, the, the spa, probably in the SPA, I imagine, in year one, because I think he did that in 1990, yeah. you know, so he would have gone and warmed the tyres up and all that, because those Dunlop tyres that were on those things were pretty slippery when they were cold, so it would have taken a couple of laps to sort of get him up, and then he would have come out of turn four and brum, 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 because these cars were quick, and he would have arrowed into turn I wish I was there God I God I wish I was there so we would have arrowed into turn one with his little size eight jammed on that pedal uh, flat out and and just to see the rooster tail of grass and dirt come off that thing when it fired off the edge of the road would have been worth the price of admission but he can't get through there flat but nor can you get off the end of the back straight flat when you're contesting a pole position with him at Sandown. So tell us that one. Well, yeah. So um, in those days we didn't have data, so everything was a lap board, which was therefore delayed a lap in terms of the information. And so Buffhead and I are... Toe-to-toe. Toe-to-toe, 10th apart, you know, goes one way, goes the other way, goes one way, goes the other way. It's like, geez, I can't have that more on, uh, on pole. So um, I think 
intelligently not that the answer to this instead of having that tiny little safety lift at the end of the back straight at Sandown is you know I'm just going to commit to flat here I just need to grow a pair and get this done so um, and in doing so because you half poop yourself about what you're trying to achieve I turned it in too early and in those days it wasn't the nicely profiled sawtooth Vallelunga curving on the inside it actually had this sort of nasty little concrete rise so I hit this thing and it, you know, as soon as you break the, the the air gap between the floor and the road, they lose aero. So this thing spun in about its own car length from 170, 180 miles an hour, and rotated and you know went into the fence. Luckily, backwards it sat and broke the engine off it, and literally turned it into a bathtub. Um, and of course, who the first bloke was that came around was Dickhead, and uh, so I had to have not only the indignity of sort of unbuckling and getting out of this thing with not much more than a steering wheel, um, but the first bloke that arrived on the scene was the bloke that I was arguing with for pole. But I mean, you know, being Mark, you know, he did take me for a ride back on the side pod back to the the garage, charged me twenty bucks for it, but uh, no, so uh, he's a good sport. But yeah, that was. Um, that was actually a little bit spooky and uh, I was supposed to qualify the HRT car and I was shaking that bad and it rattled me that I said to Bradley, you're qualifying today. Wow. So, uh, yeah, so that was 1990 and uh, probably a little bit lucky because if I'd gone in feet first, I reckon I'd probably be dead. We cherish touring cars in this country. We love them, supercars as we, we know them now, but but you and, and Scafi and, and others still react, as many purist racers do, about... An open wheeler is just this mm. very so a to to drive those Formula Holdens. There's there's probably even F three thousand stuff that we could discuss, but also too you got to test and drive on more than one occasion a champ car. Yeah, does that does that rank right up there for you? Yeah, it does. And um, you know that's another chapter, another story. Um, but Steve Horn was a guy that I tried very hard to do an IndyCar deal with back in the day, and um, you know I really cherished my moment in the Formula Holden category and I remember coming back from the UK via America at one stage uh, and stopped at Long Beach and saw the IndyCars run for the first time at Long Beach in I think that would have been 1990 and it was phenomenal you know the cars were amazing and the event was amazing and the crowds were amazing and I thought gee that you know this would be fantastic to try and be a part of something like this and my uh friend engineer car fettler of the day was a guy called bob murphy and he and his brother john had worked in formula one and in indycar and in fact they'd worked for steve in in the u.s steve's an expat kiwi um who'd made a life over there initially running and part owning the budweiser team which was called true sports um and then ultimately started his own operation called tasman motorsports so um I, I worked away on on him for a long period of time to the point where you know it was sort of became apparent that I was never going to be able to get the dough together to be able to do it. But we ended up being good friends, and um, ultimately I drove his touring car, which was an out of the blue call I took in 1996 in, while I was over in Perth with Wayne Gardner, and so I went to the US in '97 for a couple of years. But um, long story short, I got to drive his Indy car at a test. Uh, they were testing a new hub device. And uh, actually, I only just found just recently the the setup sheet, um, the the travel manifest, everything to do with that test. I kind of unearthed it, so that was a that was a really cool thing. But yeah, to put that car or those cars in perspective at that time, it was a highly competitive manufacturer environment. Uh, they sent me out initially with forty inches of boost, which was about seven hundred and fifty horsepower. They're a quad cam thirty two valve aluminium twin turbo V eight. And then once they looked 
you know, you look like you, you know, you're on top of the game. Uh, okay, Mr. Crompton, full Japanese engineering squadron there, uh, managing the engine. We'll give you the extra five inches of boost. It's another 150 horsepower. So it was a 900 horsepower exercise, and uh, I mean, it's hard to describe. Um, so, you know, I love, love those cars that period of the sport you know at, at that point it was a it was an amazing category so to be able to drive one was uh, was a great thrill sad that never able to get uh you know get my ability squared away sufficiently or the money or whatever was required to get the job done to be able to ultimately race one but uh, to at least test one was very very cool bounce through a couple of other cars you mentioned about uh, North, American, North American Touring Car Championship Super Touring. That car, that Honda, now resides mm. in Christchurch, New Zealand. I've seen it. I've seen the beautiful setup sheets that you did back in the day, the very detailed stuff. That, that car has heritage back to David Leslie, British Touring Car Championship. Yeah. That was a great little rig, wasn't it? It was, and the very first time I drove it was at a place called Putnam Park outside uh, uh, Indianapolis in the US, and I thought to myself, what have I done? Like, it was, it was just so... So cold over there, and um, it was profoundly evil to drive. You know, like it was, you know, front wheel drive. You couldn't get the rear tyres to work. We had setup issues, wheel alignment issues. I mean, it was just like uh, it was was no fun at all. And I thought, my goodness, you know, like how do I get on the plane and and, and head back down here? Um, but. As time went by, we started to understand how to get the most out of it. And by the time I got to the end of that championship season, it was probably to this day one of my favourite cars to drive. Just a beautiful little car, really beautifully engineered by MSD in the UK. And um, uh, Eddie Hinckley was the engineer back in the TWR days when I first started driving for Tom. And ironically, he was the engineer at MSD that was involved in that Honda program. The world connects in motorsport, which is an interesting thing. But, yeah, I really love that car. Unfortunately, we... It's sort of funny, like, you know, reputationally, I never had the black hat in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like every other driver, you had good days, middle days and bad days. Um, but when I went to the US, I got off to a good start at Long Beach and I think I won one or maybe both the races there. I can't remember now. But um, And, you know, had some pretty monumental battles with a guy called Peter Cunningham who ran, ran the Honda program over there for his own business called Real Time Racing. And David Donoghue, who was in the Chrysler or the Dodge program, he's the son of the late, great Mark Donoghue, who was Roger Penske's first real full-blown factory driver back in the day. Uh, well, they they were not huge fans of Uncle Neil. And, <laughs> um, and only because of the brand of racing here was that, you know, it, the guys here race tough. You know, it's not a after you, please, I insist kind of set up here it's you know it's dog eat dog um as it is in europe and australian touring car racing is pretty robust so i certainly wouldn't have regarded myself as being a dirty competitor but we went to detroit and i put a move on pete cunningham which was 100 percent legit i got down the inside of him complete an entire car but it was a skinny field it was 15 cars or whatever it was so again from an organizer standpoint i understand the angst but anyway pete bounced off me and ended up in the wall down the back of uh, Belle Isle in Detroit. And then with like a lap to go, I'd hunted David down 
and got to him and this was a marginal one like it was maybe maybe not at the b pillar i don't know to this day who cares but anyway so i've half punted him and uh anyway the whole paddock wanted to lynch me so they disqualified us i've never been disqualified from a car race in my life and steve horn was livid like steve i think you know him you know this is a man of very 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 few words and he was livid and he went that is it so he we parked up we didn't do the next two races at Portland in Oregon, which is on the other side of the country. That definitely uh, cost you the championship. It cost me the championship, which was a bummer. Now, I mean, Larko and Scafie go, you know, you wanker, what are you doing over there? You know, the fistful of cars. But it's like any category. There's there's good guys, bad guys, and in-between guys. Certainly wasn't the, the depth of talent in the field that we had here. But it's still a moment in your life that you regard as being important. And it would have been nice, particularly in... Um, looking back phase of your life now on the motor racing career to go, well, I actually won the American Touring Car Championship. Anyway, it didn't happen, so that's life. But um, never got any trophies either, which is a sore point. Can I tell you what my sore point of that journey was? The guy that bought Tasman Motorsport was a guy called Jerry Forsyth who used to run the players' IndyCar team and he bought Tasman out and we'd won a fistful of trophies and, you know, various stuff, junk that you earn. When he bought the team... um, he operated for a while and then ultimately he closed that business and he went and put everything from that team in a barn somewhere where he lived near Chicago or whatever. And so Neil Micklewright was the team manager of the day who lots of mutual friends knew. So I went, oh, geez, I'd really like to get hold of my trophies because I thought that because one thing the Yanks do is they do a cool trophy. Yeah. So I thought this will be pretty good, you know, something to put the, you know, like McLaughlin does, put the chicken McNuggets into the state. <laughs> and... Um, Bugger me, he wouldn't. He wouldn't give us. Wouldn't give me the trophies. So he's, they're locked up in a barn somewhere. Probably the you know, bulldozed in a tip somewhere these days. But they wouldn't. They went. No, no. We bought the team. We own them. And I was like, but you didn't earn them. It's bad luck. We own them. Oh wow. Yeah. So you can imagine what I'm thinking about yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of all the supercars that you've driven, is there a a favourite one that you have a soft spot for? It's a very cynical business, Gregory, mm-hmm. motor racing. So you tend to have love for those that you did well in and you loathe those that you did poorly in. And ironically, that can change from day to day. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the real key points. Uh, you know, if I look back now through a you know, truth serum prism, I think there are days where, you know, what I was able to do was, was equal to best practice, but there are other days where you weren't. Uh, probably too fussy sometimes trying to find perfection in setup um, and you dip your hat to those that did it really well so and that's why I've always thought that the guys that you know stacked on the results um, you know guys like Mark or Marcus Ambrose or Russell Ingle or any of you know, Larry Perkins all those people back in that era that had success you know you Jimmy Richards you've got to you've got to dip your hat to their ability to be consistently successful so um, um, you know so there are cars along the way that there are days that you recall that you clicked and you sort of felt like you could do no wrong. Ironically, you'd probably, you'd probably be surprised by the answer. So, for example, in 1998 at Bathurst, because I think it's about the honesty of looking in the mirror and knowing whether or not on that day you were doing absolutely everything you could do to get a result. And the result may not have manifested in terms of a, of a race victory. So in 1998, we had a very fast car. Glenn Seaton and I, what was it, an EL, I think it was called in those days, Falcon. Um, and it didn't start that way. We, we made some damper changes on the run during the day and it sort of came into phase and it got better and better. 
And um, we were contenders. And then about lap 100, which always seemed to be my Bermuda Triangle up at Bathurst, the um, thing had a, um, a power steering malfunction, uh, much to Glenn's disgust. And then I double stinted, maybe even triple stinted near the back end, but got us unlapped. And I think we came home fourth or fifth or something that day. And that was a really beautiful car. That particular car on that day and that track and the mindset, you know, I just remember it being, that's about as harmonious as you get. And I, oddly enough at Bathurst, which is a place where you often have really strong recollections of the place, I don't know what it was, but on the evens, as in 94, 6, 8, 2000, 2002, it was like those cars were good and on the odds really? they were crap. Wow. And I don't know, yeah, yeah, really strange. So um, and then that might just be, you know, manipulating data in your head in the years following. But the, the 98 car was good. The 2000 car was very, very good. And that was the year that I was leading from Mark uh, when Matt Neal, who was some lap or laps down, who I'd passed cleanly, decided to dive bomb it down the inside at turn one and whacked it and ripped the front spoiler off it and destroyed that day. So that was pretty painful. Um, and t- 2002, that car was very fast. It wasn't great in a straight line, but it was very, very fast over the top of the hill that I shared with Lowndes. And, um, you know, that was involved in a great battle when I got out of it that it involved Russell, Jimmy and myself at the front of the field. So, yeah, I haven't really answered the question, but yeah, there is certainly a small percentage of cars that you sort of look back at fondly now, but it's really hard to isolate Mm. a car as Mm. such. I mean, if I actually had to probably pick just a car, I'd say towards the end of its life, that little Honda Accord was about as sweet a race car as you drive for balance and braking stability and mid-corner grip, and but, you know, not they don't have the squirt and the point-to-point squirt that a supercar had. you google the phrase turbo boost instead of getting pictures of cars into coolers and boost gauges you get results for fast computer chips what happened to the world i want to touch briefly on 1992 an even year you're on the podium in a crazy race in what was the nissan mm. gtr then and uh, young Greg Rust was standing under the podium that day. Uh, <laughs> were you one of the assholes were you <laughs> well, i was blown away by the craziness of it i was actually kind of speechless that but you know, okay, there was division. There's always been that in, in motor racing. But but at that time, I was blown away by, by people's reactions to it. Dick Scaifey wanted to put cans in his pocket, which yeah. I think Jimmy coaxed him out of. Jimmy yeah. then went on to say, you're a pack of assholes. Yeah. But you kind of half-fired up, didn't you? Yeah, well, that's right. So we were parked off to the side of the what was then known as the Tui Centre, and the reaction was real. I mean, I can't say in this mm. broadcast what was being chanted, but it was pretty foul. Yeah. And... Um, Look, I understood it. It was a four-wheel drive car in an era where everything else was two-wheel drive. I mean, in the parody world that we live in now, I mean, it would never fly. But it it was permitted within the rules. Nissan maximised their opportunity and they built a Sierra Beta and uh, that's what it went and did. So um, we'd stopped for, I think it was rear pads actually, not even front pads, for the team to have a look at the pad wear just so that they could assess what our car was doing and then determine what they wanted to do with the lead car, which was Jimmy's and and Mark's car. But it took us out of being first and second and put 
Anders, Olofsson and my car into third position. So the sandwich in the middle was was DJ and and Bowie in the in the Sierra, who did an amazing job that day um, in really dangerous, horrible conditions. This is a deeply saddening day, shocking weather. We we lo- we we lost a friend in Denny Holm, mm-hmm. you know who. Um, you know, I just used to love leaning on the garage walls, talking about Can-Am cars and Formula One of yesteryear, and the guy was just just a gem. So, um, yeah, tough circumstances and and just filthy rain up there like you can't believe. But anyway, so you get on the podium, so whether or not you're in a car that did or didn't have an advantage or not, just seemed to us as though it was an un-Australian thing for people to be chanting the, the word the word that they were chanting that we were a bunch of and um so when i went out and did my thing i um you know there was anders and i and the the crowd was very pro dj and and john as you'd expect but i thought the best way to deal with it was to flip the bird so i (laughs) i made sure that everyone that i could make eye contact with got the middle finger you know thrust upon them from the uh the tui center as uh, best i could which didn't help um so if the decibel racket was 95 db it went to 110 and then i was an even bigger one of what are those one of those that they were uh, and we you know which which just set the scene perfectly for MS and uh, Richo to arrive on the scene. And the true story is, and he still had them in his pocket, MS was armed with fully charged cans of twoies. Wow. So he was ready to pitch them back because we were getting stuff thrown at us. There was grog flying. And um, and if you look back at the tapes now and you have a look at, at Mark's face, it's very funny. And, you know, you and I know him quite well. We've spent half a lifetime or more uh, with this bloke. And when he gets that look on his face, he's up for a stoush. So I think he was quite prepared to go downstairs and take on 500 people, which probably would have been, uh, uh, you know, he, he likes a he likes a battle, but maybe, uh, maybe that one was a good one to avoid. But he was fully armed with at least a couple of well and truly uh, live shells in his pocket. Wow. So, uh, yeah, twoies. I don't know whether it would have got him very far. It would have been good to drink. It would have been. You don't make a lot of noise about it. I want to highlight it in this conversation. You played a significant part in the formation of what we now know and love today. How did that supercars aspect and, and the part that you played in it come about? There's some talk about a, a plane flight and Tony Cochran or something along mm. those lines. Did it, did it sort of start in some fashion like that? Well... I was hustling to do the IndyCar project and Tony in those days was the, whatever his title was, maybe chairman of the Grand Prix, or, I beg your pardon, of the Indy Grand Prix or the IndyCar event on the Gold Coast. So, you know, I'd been talking to him about how we might be able to put a pro- program together to drive at surfers in an IndyCar and um, he and I formed a friendship and he had a a very mild curiosity about what the, well, in those days it was called Group A Touring Cars, which is a pretty ordinary name when you think about it. And um, the short version of this yarn is that um, I had been involved uh, at, together with other colleagues in attending various meetings about the category and its future and where it was going. And remember in these days these particular days it was the polar opposite to what it is now so if if we were the equivalent of a of a rock band we were as teams paying to play mm-hmm. we weren't being paid to play so 
the promoters were the risk takers in the sense, but they, they took the bounty and even worse, the teams had to pay to enter. So it was kind of a really weird deal. So the conversation evolved with Tony and, and I was frustrated at the time. Motor racing people are my life and uh, my love and my brethren and I'm one of them but I've probably always had a slightly different view of it in that I see it in entertainment terms as well as the purity of the driving and the engineering, which I love and revere. But but without the entertainment, there is no box office. Without the box office, there is no money. Without customers, there's none of any of the above. So for me, the number one core to everything that we do is the customer, the box office, the entertainment value, and then the engineering and the driving follows. Whereas obviously, if you were from a period in the 40s or 50s or whatever, and there were, you know, there was, it was illegal to have sponsors on the car. So it was pure. It was about the engineering, the driving, but that's not how it was in the 80s or, or 90s. So I used to get frustrated listening to, I don't know, I'll just be facetious here, but you know, people arguing about whether the valve caps on the on the um, on on the uh, rims, you know, to uh, it should have been anodized. I don't know, I'm, trying, I'm grappling here. Whether they should have been anodized pink or green or blue, who cares? Who gives a stuff? It's got nothing to do with anything, or or some other obscure thing that only the industry cares about. You know, it's sort of it, it can't always be for mechanics and engineers, particularly if it ignores the customer along the way. So it was a lot of that kind of. Um, I'm, try, I'm, I'm trying to choose my words carefully, um, navel-gazing. And I said this to Tony, you know, the, and he was involved in much bigger, broader entertainment projects in those days that, you know, we needed someone like him who saw it for its show business value and then let the engineers, the drivers and the mechanics and everybody ply their trade after it, but first and foremost get the show right. So that conversation warmed up and... Uh, we, we had various meetings about it. I only just recently found the letter uh, that I wrote to him to say, yeah, following our conversation, I'll come up. And so I went to his place and um, we, we spent a lot of time talking about who's who, did a SWOT analysis, um, went through the monkeys in the zoo and talked about who they all were and what their politics was and what mattered and what didn't. And that would have been early in... Um, 1996 by the latter part of 96 he pulled everybody together at Sandown and by 1997 the business that we now know as supercars was pulled together and uh, so I didn't really have anything much to do with it after that other than being participant in it but remember I'd gone to the US in 97 and a fair chunk of 98 but uh, Tony, to his credit, delivered everything that he said he would. He was a crash or crash through merchant. Some people didn't like um the way in which he went about doing what he did, but without him, the business would have been, I mean, it just wouldn't exist like it currently exists. So we owe him a debt of gratitude uh, like almost no other person. And it was probably done concurrently with David White from Network 10. So the fact that David was driving the television side of it for 10, who then created a franchise based on it being the home of motorsport and Tony in the engine room of the company and Wayne Caddick ultimately as sort of the balancing business act offsetting Tony's entrepreneurial nature um, was a tremendous powerful triangle. So you had David White leading the television charge and then he annexed ARC, WRC, IndyCar, Formula One, Supercar, invented RPM. You know, it was a powerhouse, as you know, because you were a part of it. Tony made sure that, that Supercars was on the up. 
um, saw it for what couldn't give a flying you know what about valve spring tensions or whether or not you had toe in or toe out but cared a lot about the customer and the show and then you know Wayne was clearly a very good business brain in the background having had a corporate background and done a lot um, in racing and with Shell and with others and we had good sponsors we had good broadcasters we had good management and we also had a healthy competitor base with a lot of OEM support as well. So like, like most things, there's a thousand elements to its success, um, but but Tony's role in all that was was really significant. But so, yeah, somewhere in there, I was one of the, one of the threads. Hall of Fame, life membership at Motorsport Australia. Now, what you've done in broadcasting terms with your love of the sport, with your immense dedication if if our listeners were to walk into the commentary box you would see plastered from floor to ceiling valuable information that enhances the broadcast you've got all this sort of stuff at your fingertips you do an amazing job with it crompo it's it's world class and even now it still gives you a massive buzz. Yeah, it does. Thanks, Rusty. And it's nice, you know, when you when you cop an accolade from a peer. So thank you very much for that. And um look it's a it's a passion and it's a life really you know it's kind of um i think in many ways the motorcycle or or the the fanatical kid fan the motorcycle racing exposure the little bit of exposure to business the race driving and then um all of the wheeling and dealing that it takes to make that happen ended up effectively being what I describe as the University of Motorsport. So um, really all those learnings have been applied into the commentary box and, I mean, our job is to inform and entertain. That's it. That's what the role is. That's that's what we need to do. And I think people recognise whether you're passionate or not. They recognise whether you know your stuff or not. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily come easy. I mean, some of it, obviously, from recalling a track or a, or why someone's making a particular move or considering what they're doing is probably in, innate. Um, but some of the other stuff is just hard work. So, I mean, it's typically it's about a two-week process to get ready for a race um, with the last week going into it being hardcore and everybody um, in the broadcast unit and especially my wife, Sarah, go, why are you doing that? You know, because, um, you know, surely you must know it by now, but I don't, I treat every event, you know, you and I are at an event this weekend and I treat everyone like the the first one and I try to make sure that I understand it from an engineering standpoint as best I can without trying to pretend I'm an engineer because I'm clearly not. Um, f- from a competitive standpoint, from a statistical standpoint, you know, I try and make sure that I know and understand the track and I kind of switch my brain onto it. And, I, you know, I run my own paperwork over it all, but I've got a lot of great support. You know, Aaron Noonan does you know, all the hardcore statistical tracking. Oscar Fioranotto, who was an engineer of Craig's and mine back in the early 2000s when we were at Gibson's, um, you know, he provides a lot of the engineering answers. And um, But I still... You know, they're up. It's actually upstairs in my room. I still, I still pull out the trusty little pocket notepad and pen, and I wander around. And I talk to people, and I, I don't, I don't sort of ask them. You know, you know, where did you finish in last week's race or whatever? Because that's all kind of out there in the public domain. But I kind of like to know how they are, where they've been, what they've been up to. Are they well? What have they been driving? You know, what's going on in their lives, and sort of hopefully bring the viewer 
you know, who is our customer and our friend um, into the party and share the experience of what it's like to drive the car or why certain things are being considered in the adjustment of the car or what it's like in the pit lane or what's happening in the paddock or, you know, just try and give give proximity to it. So, yeah, look, I really love it It's and it's given me a life um, that's a privilege um, that I would never have imagined when I was a kid and it's given me friendships and opportunities and travel uh, that I could never possibly hope to have, you know, have achieved probably any other way. Thank goodness, or I'd be—I I don't know what I'd be doing. You know, I'd be—I'd be licking stamps in the post office at Ballarat or something. I'm not sure, but it, it yeah. So, yeah, very grateful um, to be able to do it. But yeah, I—it's—it's um, it's something that I like. It's, I mean, it's a weird thing, you know, because you do it too. But you know, my job is I scream at a television. Mm-hmm. Most people do, but they don't get paid. <laughs> So it's fun. Did it did it help you in the whole stopping from the professional driving thing to keep you involved, keep you immersed in it, or was it was it hard to stop that stuff, mate? Because it's it's like a drug. Really, oh, I, yeah, I I think you were there, and you probably remember. I was pretty grumpy and pretty. I didn't want to do it. So off the back of professional driving, the truth of the matter is, I didn't want to be a commentator. And to David White's credit who was the head of sport at Network 10, he kept insisting that I do it. And it was only after a lot of arm twisting. It had nothing to do with money or I just didn't want to do it. You know, I kind of felt like it was uh, – and I, I remember grumbling. I reckon our first one was at Phillip Island. I reckon you were there. Mm-hmm. And I reckon I arced up going, you know, kind of why am I here? Because when you – the intensity of racing – the, the car and trying to be successful at racing the car is so all-consuming. It's every granule in your body. It consumes you 25 hours a day, eight days a week. And anything less than that when you're a driver and you have to be selfish when you're a driver, you sort of view as being inconsequential, inconsequential, I beg your pardon, or, you know, who cares, it doesn't matter. So for me, even though I'd had some proximity to the broadcasting thing and I certainly knew and understood aspects of it, if it was going to be like I'd failed, you know, to not be in a race car when every when all my colleagues and peers were hitting the starter button, there I am on the side talking about it. So I hated it to start with. Um, and I remember that uh, David White, Scott Young, who these days is the head of um, Sky's F1 coverage, and uh, Steve Wood um, and possibly Andrew Radford, who were kind of part of the management team in the sport department at 10, they sort of had to reinflate me and put me back together a little bit because I certainly wasn't uh, a happy camper. But uh, I think as time went by, the wounds heal and then you get on with it. And then as I began to find a rhythm and a, and a and s- and some cadence and some pace in the whole thing. I, you know, I, I warmed up to the task. And I, and I think what I tried to do at that point was bring a little bit of a race team mentality to what we did in... 100% did that, mate. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, tried to think like a race team, tried to, you know, instead of just going it's car number 19 and it's red and Joe Bloggs is driving it and he's 3.2 seconds in front of Fred Nurk, was try to understand the deeper questions and to understand the deeper questions you had to introduce a bit of the motor racing complexity but then the trick with that which broadcasters for many decades had always run from instead of running from it my view of it was simplify it so try and take the complex and crush it into something that was simple Mike Audson was another person who um, used to be um, a huge supporter and we sadly lost him not terribly long ago and he was uh, 
the predecessor of David as the head of sport at 10, he actually dragged me in initially. And he was always of the view that, you know, he loved the fact that he, he felt that I had an act to be able to simplify complex. Unfortunately, I don't get to do it as much these days just because of the structure of the telecasts. So I'm sort of more stuck in the com box than... But, you know, I still enjoy explaining what's going on and why when I do get the chance. But, yeah, it's um, it's been an amazing journey and one um, that I'm extremely grateful uh, for having had the experience and, and still being permitted to do it to this day because, obviously, it's a business that chews people up and spits them out as well. Final one. You, the success is also, I think, down to the wonderful team on air that you have and the friendships. So clearly, you know, you, Mark Larkham, Mark Scaife are good mates and that, that shines through in the, in the coverage. And Larko and you have a funny story in Darwin one year about, <laughs> what was it, the warbler? Was it the yeah. warbler? <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, the, um, to your point, I mean, I think one of the things that shines through and Australian audiences in particular are very good at picking this up. They, they, they smell... Uh, BS from a long way out. So they know whether there's a rapport between uh, the various people that, that occupy their televisions. And and so, um, you know, we have got a very good team and we have had for a long period of time, and yourself included, there's been a whole lot of people that have been a part of this journey since that point in the mid-90s right through to this very day that are delivering the passion of motorsport in varying forms through forums like this and other broadcasting for, through various broadcast partners. So... Um, certainly Larko, Scafi and I are mates. There's a great photo and you know how Larko loves to do artwork. So we all raced in a Formula Holden race at Oran Park in 1992 and the three of us were on the podium. So Larko managed to transpose the three of us on the podium together and called it the Three Musketeers and then here we are in the modern era uh, with a little bit of grey hair appearing on the scene and we're still working together and we're still just as passionate about oversteer and understeer and race cars, silly buggers that we are uh, to this very day. So that is special and I think particularly as we get older uh, we'll appreciate all of that stuff even more. But to your question, (laughs) Mr Rust... Um, we were in Darwin. I've got a ritual on a Monday after the race meeting there. I've been going this. I missed the first one. I was at Malala in a sports car. But uh, we've been going this since 97 as a category, me since 98. And on the Monday after Darwin, I go down to the Mary River to the to the Billabong um, down there and I always try and catch a barramundi, which is a complete and utter waste of my time and the barramundi's time. I'd be a whole lot smarter to go to the local fish and chip shop and part with 15 bucks and get a, you know, serve of chips and some barra. But that's not the point because the whole idea is to get down there with the wildlife and it's warm and it's Darwin and it's winter in the rest of the country and you just go, how good's this? So anyway, scaife doesn't want to have a bar of this, never has. He went once with Beretta down there because he managed to go down in a gold-plated chopper and then had a limo take him out to meet Mr Crocodile and then he waved to him for five seconds and then got out of there. But I did manage to con Larko to come down at one stage. So Larko's come down there and I think Simon Fordham, Fordo, um, who was our, our senior producer of motorsport for a while and Nathan Prendergast, who at the time I think was the, the, the director... Um, who now the, is the head of the, the broadcast unit. Anyway, I think they had to go to the airport for some reason, um, Fordo and Nath. So it left Larko and I in the little aluminium boat. They call it a barbecue boat. So, um, yeah, I, I want to correct something. I want to put this on the record. <laughs> I am not a bird lover, right? I am not a bird lover. 
but um, these oh, that's idiots. A, that's a, yeah. <laughs> yeah, these idiots reckon I am, and it's only because occasionally I can go. Well, that's what this thing's called. It's not because I love them. It's just like it's general knowledge, you knuckleheads, if you're listening. So uh, anyway, so I've gone. Oh yeah, whatever. Is actually, I can tell you, there's a thing up there in Darwin called a rainbow bee eater, and it's because it's like a rainbow. It's actually quite a cool looking thing, and it eats bees. Go figure. So uh, anyway, so I'm yeah. You know, look at that. Look at and there's crocs and there's fish jumping, and we're not catching anything. But what did happen on that day, despite Larko just hammering the living daylights out of me, plus I made the fatal mistake, because there's crocs everywhere. Like, I'm not reaching over the side, but, you know, because you can end up getting bitten by one of these friggin' things. So I took, because um, I thought, if I do catch a fish, how am I going to manage holding it, you know, cleaning my hands afterwards and all that? So I bought some wipes. Oh, my God. So these idiots especially Larkham, have never let me off the hook, pardon the pun, because I took wipes on a fishing trip. So, But the truth of this story is that it had nothing to do with the crocodiles and nothing to do with the friggin' birds. What happened was he's such a numpty that at one stage he cast, cocked it up, and then somehow the two of us, in ridiculously close proximity, like we were lovers, ended up stuck together, hooked. Right? Right at that point in time while we're, like, almost lip to lip, <laughs> going, you idiot, get this thing out. God, Jesus, God. And it's ripping our shirt and all the rest of it. And, you know, and we looked like we were straight out of, um, you know, middle Australia. Like we're just, you know, you can imagine what we look like. We do not look like Darwinians or Northern Territorians. We're not. And past us come these blokes in a much bigger boat. You know those bigger boats that they have up there and they've got giant engines on them and they're burly blokes and they're out fishing they're having some beers and they're like, hey, you two. You can imagine what it was. Oh, right. So, and you're, hi. Oh, yeah, you blokes, you two. You know what? Uh, you're the motor racing blokes. Yeah, no, no, actually we're not. We're just sort of stuck this way. So that's the truth of the story. Larko cannot cast. We didn't catch a bloody fish. No, I don't love birds. And the crocs up there are cool. I recommend a trip to Darwin. You've got to do it. You've got to. Mate, there is Bathurst 12-hour wins, podiums at the Great Race, award-winning stuff that you're doing in television, even separate from the broadcast with your production of the Fink Desert Race plus running the 86 series. Congratulations on, on Thanks, everything Ross. you've done, mate. It's been nice to walk down memory lane and one day you must must do a book yeah noonan keeps belting me around the head so maybe one day i'll relinquish but thank you kind words uh, nice to have a bit of a yak and you've been chasing me for about 48 years <laughs> to sit down you finally pinned me down if you can just take your foot off my throat now and let me go but no nice to nice to share a few yarns and hopefully we didn't put everybody to sleep thanks crompo thanks rusty Rusty's Garage is written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.